there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a winemaker, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is the head winemaker at the Golan Heights Winery, the third largest winery in Israel. But before I introduce you to Victor Schoenfeld, I want to make sure you've signed up to get a free copy of the Just Brew It ebook. It has amazing career advice from some of the amazing professionals who've been guests on Time for Coffee, including NPR journalist and podcaster Guy Raz, who's the host of the super popular How I Built This Podcast, and Dr. Janet Yellen, the former chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Bank. And it's so easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box will be right there on the home page. Now, my pour-over and Pinot Noir lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Victor Schoenfeld, head winemaker at the Golan Heights Winery in the northern region of Israel. Over the several decades that Victor has been at the winery, he's become a driving force in the emergence of Israel's modern wine industry. Under his leadership, the Golan Heights Winery and Yarden Wines, that's one of the four labels produced at the winery, have won numerous awards, including top honors as a Wine Spectator Top 100 Wine of the Year in 2008 and again in 2018. They've also received the Special Grand Vinitali Award for the Best Winery in the World in 2011 and a Wine Enthusiast Top 100 Wine of the Year in 2014. Victor is a pioneer in the application of new technology and winemaking techniques, including Israel's most sophisticated meteorological stations, precision viticultural analysis, irrigation management, and green practices such as composting and wind-generated electricity. Victor, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm caffeinated and and being caffeinated. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, it's such a pleasure. And actually, I think it's closer to happy hour now in Israel, isn't it? True. It's, uh, It's in the early evening. Do you actually drink wines for pleasure out of work? Absolutely. We don't drink wines for pleasure at work. (laughs) In fact, we don't drink wine at work. We taste a lot of wine, but we spit it all. Okay. And so what are you enjoying these days? Well, I'm all about diversity in my pleasure. So I think wine is generally, I think of wine as food, not really as a beverage, because we don't drink it because we're thirsty. We drink it as part of a meal. So to me, it's part of the courses of the meal. So it really depends what we're eating. If it's something light, uh, Pinot Gris, 
We actually have been making this uh, great Yarden Pinot Gris for a few years now, which is wonderful. If you're into something a little bit more full-flavored, white Chardonnay can be a heavier Chardonnay, a lighter Chardonnay. Really, it depends on the mood and the food. Yeah. So you actually pair wines with courses in your family? Uh, definitely, especially when we're lucky enough to have visitors, which hasn't happened very much recently. No. <laughs> but we but we like to host and we my wife and I both love to cook. And that's something about I'm always a little bit suspicious of a winemaker who doesn't like to cook because most do. Um, but so it's an opportunity when you have a bunch of people to be able to open up a bunch of wines so everybody gets a bit of each bottle. So, yeah. Starting with sparkling wine, generally at the beginning, moving on to a white wine, a red wine, often a dessert wine. Oh, man. I got to tell you, I I missed my window because as as I've told you through email, I have been super excited ever since my family and I had the pleasure of visiting your beautiful winery in December of 2019. And we had such a wonderful tour from one of your colleagues and got to see the bottling and the labeling and the barrels and, of course, the tasting room. But at that time, I didn't know you. So we we didn't have the opportunity to enjoy one of your pairings at home. But I want our listeners to know we are actually doing this interview in early May. And the coronavirus, of course, is affecting countries all around the world, including Israel. So how are things there at this time? Uh, we're actually opening up the economy now, this week. Movie theaters are supposed to be opening up, uh, hotels, malls are opening up tomorrow. So we feel like we're on the other side of the hump, but uh, hopefully it won't come back. So we're taking it uh, cautiously. But the wine, the winery has continued to operate. We're uh, part of the food and beverage industry and therefore considered a vital industry. And if wine isn't vital during these times, I don't know when it is. So I uh, wholeheartedly agree with the, with the importance of wine. So we're definitely one of the lucky ones. And uh, we actually live in a house with a beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights on the other side. And my wife and I like to say, well, if we have to be a little bit in prison, this is a great prison to be in. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm so glad to hear that things are going to be opening up in Israel. And it was after our visit to your beautiful winery that I said, I really want to interview whoever it is that's responsible for making this amazing wine. And I'm just so appreciative to you that you've made the time to have this conversation. So your title is head winemaker. Right. That what doesn't that tell mean? you much. Yeah. What does that mean? So I'm actually, I manage the wine department, what we call the wine department at the winery. And that includes the winemaking. So I have five winemakers that, as part of my team. In addition to myself, I'm a, a trained, educated winemaker. Um, I have our viticultural team and we we manage directly about 40% of the 1500 acres of vineyards that we that we get grapes from so we have our own viticulturists and then vineyard managers you know, and also our lab so we have a full-time lab team so all those people as 26 people all together I manage in the wine department for our listeners who may not be familiar with what viticulturists are could you explain that please 
Yeah, viticulturist is like an agronomist for, for vineyards, so a vine scientist, somebody that has an academic degree in vine science. Okay. So could you break down for us the process of winemaking? Let's see if I can do this. I would say the wine growing is a critical part of the winemaking process, and the grapes actually give us uh, the potential quality of the wine. So we can't make a better wine than the grapes are. We can always make a wine less good than the grapes are. It's easier to screw up wine, but we can't make it any better. So a lot of the work that we do is in the vineyard trying to get trying to get the grapes as good a quality as possible. And when we talk about quality grapes, we mean grapes with a lot of expression, but we're not saying, okay, we want more cherry flavors and less strawberry, things like that. We want it to be a reflection of our unique spot on the planet. So at our latitude, 33rd degrees uh, north, uh, high elevation vineyards, up volcanic soils, at the crossroads of Europe, Africa, and Asia. I mean, it's there is no place on the planet like our spot. So we want to make wines that are unique to where we're making them. And then the wine making is trying to decide how to make the wines, when to pick the fruit, how to process the grapes, how to ferment the grapes, how to age the wine, how to even bottle the wine that makes sense for the quality and character of the grapes. Got it. I was doing some reading ahead of this interview. And tell me if this is accurate, Victor. Is it true that you're always working with at least three vintages? Well, for instance, our last vintage was 2019. So we'll get all the whites from 2019 in the bottle before the 2020 harvest. We'll get a lot of the young reds in bottle by the next harvest. But the higher end reds that age for a year, a year and a half in barrels, they'll keep going as we harvest the new vintage. Uh, most of our wines are in bottle by the second vintage, but then we're bottle aging wines as well. So one of the wines we're most well-known for, Yarden Cabernet Sauvignon, that will be a minimum of a year bottle aging at the winery before we even consider starting to sell it. So yeah, we have a lot of inventory. We scare accountants with all the inventory that we have. <laughs> as a winemaker and the head winemaker, is it fair to say that you have to be really good at science and therefore at math? You have to have a working knowledge of math, definitely. Science, yes. But I have to say that even when I graduated high school, I never imagined I would be a scientist, which is I do consider myself as a scientist not doing research, pure research. But we, science lets us understand a lot of what's going on in the physiology of the vine and during the winemaking process, the soil science, weather. So you don't have to be a science freak, but it's, uh, it's a tool definitely for helping us to understand what's going on. Could you take us into a typical day on the job, and I'm guessing there is no typical day. So if you want to give us a, a couple of examples and how things change during the year, because obviously there's the growing season and the harvesting season. So could you share with us kind of beginning in January, how the year unfolds? 
So January, we're still making a lot of blending decisions about the wines coming out of the previous vintage. So we harvest, because we have a lot of in, uh, a lot of varieties at differing elevations from 1,200 feet to close to 4,000 feet, we have a, quite a long harvest. So 14 weeks is, would be typical. It can be longer sometimes. That's a long harvest, and that's an intense period. So actually, if I start with the harvest period, so I'll get to the winery at 630 I'll taste through all the red fermentations with at least two other winemakers, the red fermentations that are still fermenting with skins because all the color in red wines comes from the skins of the grapes, and it's a critical time to decide how to manage the fermentations to maximize the potential of the grapes. That can be an hour, an hour and a half, and then I'm out in the vineyards. I go out in the vineyards until lunchtime, and I'm looking at evaluating. I'm tasting a lot of grapes, first of all. Because I taste grapes and I imagine the quality of wine we could make from the grapes that I'm tasting. And the flavor of the grapes, especially in reds, but also whites, is a critical part of the decision about when to harvest the grapes. So we still have graphs of ripening and acidity and sugar levels and all sorts of things. But still, the actual being out, looking at the state of the vineyard and tasting the grapes is absolutely critical. Then I come back, have lunch, and then spend uh, with uh, the head of our wine growing department reviewing the samples of what we sampled out of the vineyards. So we have a team of nine people sampling the vineyards every day, looking at the results along with us being in the vineyards and deciding what we're going to be harvesting the next couple of days. Late afternoon, I free up for consultations with the winemaking team generally. Because it's a natural product, there's always issues that arise. So we have, you know, kind of general procedures of how we want to be making the wine, but there's endless issues that come up that need to be thought through. So we, you know, we try to be efficient. I have a great team, but people know when they come to me, they have to tell me the subject we're talking about. They have to have all the relevant information to be able to make a decision. They have to have thought about it and recommend a course of action. Then we talk about it and we make a decision and we move on. So those are 12-hour days. Back in the old days when I started, there was no legal limit on the number of hours you could work. Now there is. So we're not supposed to work more than 12 hours a day. So we try through a lot of effort during the harvest to keep it at maximum 12 hours a day. And then during the rest of the year, we do a lot of tasting because we have hundreds of wine lots in the winery and we're blending those into numerous products. So we can taste... Um, I mean, easily 50 wines. And when we do that, we're comparing them. And if they're the same variety and around the same quality level, we're working on kind of ranking those wines. So it gets to be really fine work. And it's actually quite exhausting. It's very physical to taste that many wines. And then we're always doing research. So there's always results to be looking at and discussing. There's always barrel work. We have 11,000 barrels at the winery. July is a little bit of a quieter move, but other than that, we're working uh, pretty energetically. So just to be clear, when is it that you're harvesting grapes? When is it that you are doing most, I know you're tasting all the time, but then when are you doing, I guess you always have some kind of fermentation going on because from the prior year, but could you just give us a quick overview of the way that the year unfolds? Yeah, so we harvest August, September, October. If it's a cool vintage, we'll sometimes go into November. 
at the beginning of the the few months following harvest, we're tasting and blending, you know, the younger white wines that get released earlier and red wines. And then we start working on blending the more mid-range wines from the vintage previous. And then in the spring, we're working on blending, you know, the high-end red wines from the two harvests before. So there's kind of a pattern that happens during the year. Okay. Is it true, Victor, that everyone in the wine industry, wine making industry, starts at the bottom? In other words, that you really need to, as an intern, get up close and personal with the vines, with the grapes. It may involve physical labor because if you're an intern, and I know you've been an intern, there's a lot of manual labor involved. What is the sort of typical way that a person's career unfolds if they want to be a winemaker? Maybe not everybody starts at the bottom, but that's the right way to do it. It's great to have vineyard experience. I I took a year off during college and I was a vineyard manager for a year, and that was a great experience. And then I worked as a seller, what we call seller rat, in a winery during you know, harvest before and during college. And it's really critical to understand all those processes because later when you make a decision and you start telling people what to do, it's critical to understand the cost-benefit analysis of what you're asking people to do. So if you're asking somebody to do an insane amount of work for maybe a possible positive benefit or you're asking somebody to do you know, a small amount of work that's really important to be able to understand those nuances. And you it's impossible to understand those kinds of things without having been there and done the work yourself at some point. Could you take us into the science piece of the fermentation and wine microbiology? Because you mentioned something in the Espresso Shots interview that really caught my attention. And that was that only half a percent of the wine includes several thousand other compounds. Is that accurate? When we talk about wine quality, we're talking about a huge number of compounds. And they're a very small part of what makes up the wine, you know, volume-wise. So if we just think about what wine is made out of, and we just throw out some rough numbers, you know, 85% water, which is the water, you know, that was naturally part of the grape juice, We'll have maybe 14% alcohol, could be a little bit more, it could be a little bit less, uh, half a percent of assorted acidity acids, tartaric acid, malic acid, lactic acid. And then we have another half a percent there, which can be, yeah, up to, we don't really know, but probably several thousand compounds that can make up the rest of that half a percent. And the quality of wine lies there. It doesn't really matter what percent alcohol, though alcohol does have an effect on mouthfeel and things like that. But all the real qualities in all those very small amounts of all these myriad compounds. So when we're growing the vineyards, we're looking to manage the vineyards to make a lot of those. Not We're not saying which one of those to make because the ones that are made will be a result of all the environment that the vine is in. It's something called the French call terroir, but it's the sum effect of the soil and the topography and the weather 
and everything that goes into it. Also, maybe our decisions about when to harvest and things like that. So the fermentation, actually, when we say fermentation, you know, wine is fermented grape juice. From that point of view, it's not mysterious. And that's why it's been with mankind for so long, because if you think about it, grape juice is much more technological than wine is. It's much harder to stop a fermentation from happening than just to let it happen, because there's yeast. Yeast ferment the sugar and make alcohol and carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide, we don't feel the bubbles normally because the tanks are not sealed hermetically and they we lose that. But in champagne, for instance... There's a small secondary fermentation where we trap the bubbles, and those are the bubbles made by the fermentation. So the fermentation part is actually fairly quick. Uh, it can be a week, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, but then the wine is like a living organism. It keeps changing. Uh, wine never stays the same. And the several hundreds, thousands, compounds, the, their ratios to one another changes the character of the wine. So no wine will ever be the same as any other wine. Interesting. You've mentioned the weather. And in the introduction, I talked about the fact that one of the techniques that you've brought to the Golan Heights winery is Israel's very sophisticated meteorological stations. What difference does it make that you know what's going to happen in the weather a week or days in advance? Because obviously, you know, the weather is the weather and it's not like you can shield the grapes from whether too much rain or too much sun or cold. Right. When we taste a bottle of wine, we're tasting, like I said, the the soil and the climate in general. But each vintage is its own game and picture. And we want it. It's not like, you know, when you open up a bottle of beer, you want if I was making big brand bottle of beer what's brewed around the world and our, the work is trying to make each bottle identical. That's you know the complete opposite of what we do. So we want each vintage to be distinctive. So the weather stations are not predictive. They're just recording what's going on. But when I get to work, the first thing I do when I turn on my computer is I bring up, I think, six different weather sites uh, because they all use different models to see what kind of weather we're most likely to get. So weather has a huge impact uh, right now because we're already in the spring. The vineyards have the shoots, the new shoots of this year have started growing. So if it's warmer, they grow faster. Once we have, you know, berries and clusters, the weather will affect the composition of those things. And then you can also build models. Okay, so the weather has been like this So far this year, that means we're probably going to hit these stages. The grapes will probably turn color at this date, so we have to get things done by then. We want the vineyards to be at a certain level of water stress. Oh, we can also build models for, okay, it's been warm and humid, so we might be in danger of uh, funguses growing, more rot in the grapes maybe. So there's a lot of uh, possibilities in using the weather. I see. Okay. That makes sense. We're going to be talking about your time in college a little bit later, but suffice it to say that you majored in enology, which is the study of wines and winemaking. You actually also said it was described at the time as fermentation science, which involves chemistry and biology. Do you think it's necessary in this day and age for someone to major 
in enology to major in viticulture, and I know that the majors combined, you can get both, for somebody who wants to be a winemaker? Or could they just learn it by working alongside somebody who's a master winemaker like you? You could learn it on your own, but it's pretty inefficient to do it that way. And again, because we work in cycles of a year, you would need quite a long time to understand the processes from doing it that way. Because uh, there's so much unknown in viticulture and in the winemaking, I don't think it makes sense not to know as much as we possibly can because there's so much we don't know. So at least the part that we can know, it makes sense uh, to know that. So I do think it's a huge advantage to, to get an academic degree. You can still have a you know, I have a Bachelor of Science, though most of my team uh, has master's degrees. Because the science, the technology side of agriculture, what we call precision agriculture, precision viticulture, is becoming more and more a part of agriculture. The experience with research that you get in a master's program is a bit of a, an advantage, but it's not critical. Most of the people that study, get a graduate degree, have studied something else undergraduate. So there aren't many people, I don't think I've ever met one actually, that has an undergraduate degree in viticulture and and then they go on to get a master's degree. Like there, I took also master's level courses when I got my first degree. So there wouldn't have been many more specific courses I could have studied if I had gone on to my master's degree. So for that reason, I didn't do it. But, uh, you know, a lot of people in winemaking come to winemaking a bit later. They've decided that they want to do something that they're passionate about in their lives. And so if you already have a first degree, and then it makes more sense, especially if you've already studied something uh, science-based as a first degree and something else, then you might as well go for a master's degree. How did you get interested in winemaking? Well, I would say the basis is that I've always loved food and I've always been drawn to the kitchen. And then I got enthused with uh, the idea of being a farmer, uh, which for me was the idea of growing food. Uh, But this was the early 80s and agriculture was probably the most industrialized it's ever been. And everything was about shelf life. Everything was about appearance. And I wasn't that wasn't where I was coming from. The big exception was viticulture, wine grapes, where flavor is everything. So I naturally, and I'd already learned to love wine by that point, so I naturally gravitated towards viticulture. And then I understood that the grape growing was just part of the overall winemaking process. So at that time, you either had to study viticulture or enology, which was subspecialty in fermentation science at that time. Now you can just get a degree in viticulture and enology, which is a lot makes a lot more sense and is a lot easier. But so at that time you had to choose. So I actually started uh, studying viticulture, took a year off to uh, manage a vineyard, which was great experience. And then came back in my fourth year of college and changed my major in my senior year. (laughs) And then I had to do another, uh, almost another entire year. Oh my God. So I did almost, almost five years of university. Got it. Well, I don't know if I need to ask you this question, but I will anyway, because I ask all my guests this. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated, Victor? Well, I don't generally like to make assumptions, but I I did think I was going to give winemaking a try. 
I, you know, from the first time I remember thinking about it, the first time I thought about it, I felt something inside me kind of click. And I kind of, uh, I'm lucky from that point. I've had a lot of luck throughout my career. But one of those pieces of luck was having a strong feeling that it would be something that I would enjoy. I didn't know how correct that was going to be, but I, I couldn't think of anything that I'd rather do than what I'm doing uh, professionally. Doesn't get better than that. <laughs> no, it's it's a gift. For our young listeners who may be listening to you right now and saying, gosh, you know, that, that sounds intriguing. What would you want them to know, Victor, about Obviously, it's it sounds very romantic being out there in the fields and tasting grapes and getting involved in the fermentation if you enjoy chemistry or science. But for those who may not be well suited to this, what would you want them to know about winemaking that would kind of wake them up from a dream <laughs> that this is just nonstop fun? Well, it is a lot of fun, but it's not romantic. So, you know, cleaning a tank when you start out and you're dragging hoses and you're uh, washing tanks and washing barrels and moving barrels around, or you're out in the hot sun, you know, you're pruning a vineyard, which you've been doing for a month and a half, and you're kind of gotten very strangely strong hand muscles. Uh, but, you know, it's something that is repetitive in that in that way. And it's at the beginning... I guess it's kind of menial, but I always found it fun and interesting. But if it, it's not, yeah, it's not romantic. You get dirty, you get hot, you get sweaty, you work a lot. And for somebody whose main goal is to make a huge uh, fortune, that's probably not going to happen. So it's for really for people who are into a certain kind of lifestyle. It's mostly rural. I mean, you're not going to be living in a a big city, which I find attractive, but most of the places you make wine are beautiful places. You know, you're going to have to make a decision if you, you get into it, what kind of wine area you want to live and work in, because starting out in Napa Valley, you're probably not going to be able to afford to buy a house in Napa Valley as a winemaker because it's become, you know, a playground of the wealthy. Um, I chose instead of coming to a well-established area, kind of being a bit of a pioneer, I guess, in a less well-known area and building it up. I think it's it's been a great experience for me. So, yeah, if you're coming into it because you you know you think wine is sexy or something like that, that's uh, that's not the the direction to come at it from. I remember hearing a chef. Once, say, he asks uh, people that come to work for him, you know, do you like to eat or do you like to cook? Because he's looking for people that like to cook, not like, you know, they're not people that are coming from a, too much of a foodie background because, you know, there's a lot of just elbow grease involved in cooking and there is in winemaking. There's a lot of science to it also. Yeah. If you were a young person who was in college or right out of college, and you were looking for a country where wine is developing, or maybe it, it isn't a Napa, it isn't a Golan Heights, it isn't a pick the region in France, where would you recommend they look for an opportunity to kind of be in on the ground floor of the winemaking industry? 
Well, even in the even in places like California, there's always emerging areas. There's emerging areas in California, in Oregon, in Washington, and probably Iowa. I imagine most states now have you know wine industries internationally. At the beginning, I think it's important to work with different people and in different areas. So you want one of the things you've if you do that and you work, you know, you see different approaches and you see different conditions, you learn pretty quickly that there is no right answer. And winemaking is not about a recipe. Every place is different and you have to figure out the importance of critical thinking and independent thought can't be overstated. I was lucky enough to work with incredibly talented, uh, modest people. And I think modesty is an incredibly important part of being successful, definitely in winemaking, because once you start to get too arrogant, you start closing the doors on possibilities of continued learning. Agriculture, I think, has a way in viticulture, winemaking. Just when you think you have things figured out, nature comes and gives you a big slap in the face. So nature doesn't let you get too arrogant. Um, But for our profession, that's a good thing. You mentioned, Victor, the importance of sort of working in different places. When you were in college, you alluded to the fact that you worked as a harvest intern. It was at a vineyard in Sonoma County. What is a harvest intern? It can be a a couple of different things. Like I worked in harvests. They can call it an internship, but you're basically another set of hands getting all the work done during harvest. I worked at uh, an intern analogist at Robert Mondavi Winery, which was family-owned at that time, coming out of school, which was uh, a competitive position at that time. But uh, we hit it off, and that was that was a great experience. You know, I think of our winery a little bit as Mondavi was in the '70s, '80s in California as being, you know, a, a pioneer and a representative of the industry as a whole. And I think a lot of, you know, things, what we do is trying to push uh, our entire industry forward and getting our industry known in the world in general. So that was a great experience to see how that was done. What is a harvest intern? I recognize that you're an extra set of hands. So intern probably doesn't reflect the fact that you're a real team member. But what are you doing as a harvest intern? Oh, you're going to be doing pump overs, which means you're going to be standing uh, on the top of a tank and directing the flow of wine over the skins during the fermentation. You're going to be filling barrels. You're going to be washing barrels. You're going to be washing tanks. Depending on the size of the winery, you could be sampling the vineyards a bit. You could be doing some lab work, analyzing the juice samples coming in and the young wines that are fermenting. When you're first starting off, it would be it's good to work at a small winery where you get to do a bit of everything. When you start working at larger wineries, you start to get a bit more specialized. At our winery, we have an internship position, and they're in charge of our experimental winery. So we have a complete small-scale winery where we produce up to 150 wines a year, and that's great hands-on experience. You know a lot about it how wine is made from doing something like that. But it's a very specific kind of experience. Oh, cool. And how many internship positions are there? We have a one formal internship position at our winery, and then we have a lot of you know temporary people. Uh, obviously, uh, in the vineyards, that, that's more local people. Also, we need a lot more, not a, not a lot more, but we need more people also working in the cellar and barrels during the harvest. 
Got it. I want to just quickly run through a little bit of your experience before you got to the Golan Heights winery, because I think it's just good for young people to understand what different entry-level positions are available. You worked as a vineyard assistant at another vineyard in Sonoma, in which it says you were responsible for training young Chardonnay and Pinot Noir vines. What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have a whip. When you're uh, growing up a young vineyard, you know, you start with a very small vine, but you have to grow up the trunk. You have to grow up normally the cordons, which are kind of the arms going out to the side. Over the few years, you're kind of forming the permanent structure of the vineyard. So that's the what we call training. Is uh, So it's, you know, connecting the shoots to stakes and cutting off the excess and taking a, another shoot and putting it on the sidearm and developing what's going to be the the final vine in the end. Got it. And then from there, you worked at the Robert Mondavi Winery that you mentioned. You were an intern enologist and you acted as a Red Crush assistant. What is that? So I was actually responsible for going out every day and looking in and smelling all the red fermentations at the winery at the time. So that it was a fairly big winery, so that took a while. And reporting anything that might be off. Problems can start developing in wines, and they're most easy to correct if you catch them at the beginning. Once problems get out of hand, they get much more complicated to, to deal with. So it was making sure all the uh, young fermentations were going apace and that everything looked good, monitoring that the, the rates of fermentation, writing work orders if we needed to do something. So, And I worked with great people there. It was a great experience. Fantastic. Your last experience before you moved to the Golan Heights was in France. You were in Champagne, France, where you worked, no surprise, as a Champagne intern. And you were involved in all aspects of Champagne production at the Champagne, was it Jacqueson et Fils? Yeah, exactly. Jacqueson et Fils. Yeah, so there it was an internship that they made basically as a favor to me. The Golan Heights Winery had started a sparkling wine program. They were interested in me getting sparkling wine experience, and I already love sparkling wine anyway. So we kind of, through a consulting company in Champagne that the Golan Heights Winery had started working with, they helped me get this position, and it was just—it still is a wonderful winery owned by two brothers. And so I got there during the harvest, and then in Champagne, if you get there at a certain time, you can see harvest, and then you can see blending. You can see what we call tirage bottling, which is taking the young wines, bottling them with a bit more yeast and liqueur, which uh, is responsible for making the secondary fermentation in the bottle, which gives us the bubbles in the end. And then you can be disgorging the previous vintages, which means settling the yeast in the bottle and freezing the bottleneck, opening up the bottles, taking the yeast out, and then reclosing them with the permanent cork. So I was there October, November, December, January. And so that's the exact window where you can see basically all of the phases of sparkling wine production. And again, that was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I have to say that one of the things that I'm struck by, Victor, is just how many moving pieces there are. This is so complicated. It is complicated. Like, for instance, at our winery, 
we have, you know, six professional winemakers at the winery. We have two, soon to be three viticulturists, you know, uh, which is a vine agronomist. So we have a lot of professionals to deal with all that resolution because, again, with precision viticulture, the precision with the way that we're looking at in the vineyards and the way we're actually looking at the wine is just becoming higher and higher resolution, which means you're getting more and more data all the time. And to, every time you explore a new facet, it opens up more unknowns. And it's, it's like an onion. You peel a layer and then there's another layer and another layer and it's, it's endless. So we're never bored. Boredom is something we do not know. Yes, it certainly sounds like it. Before I ask you the two final Time for Coffee questions, I'm just curious what you would want to share with our young listeners regarding how winemaking and wine growing is evolving right now. It's going in all sorts of directions. I think one general thing is that kind of the fine wine industry and the basic wine industry are getting further and further apart. I think they're really becoming two industries. So on the low end, it's all about cost cutting. You're having bulk wine move in 24,000 liter bags and containers all over the world for blending where it's going to be bottled and sold at you know fairly low prices. You have a lot of high tech things being done to those wines, things like flash detente, where you take uh, red grapes and you <laughs> heat them and put a vacuum on them and you get out a lot of color and capture the aroma molecules and then you add them back. That kind of industry I don't find attractive personally. It's more really industry. So the high end is still you know, a lot of very fine work, a huge amount of ten, uh, attention to detail. And the whole GIS, geographical information systems, the whole computing revolution as it relates to geography has really changed and continues to change the way that we manage vineyards. So instead of thinking of our vineyards as a collection of vineyard blocks and a block as a management unit, now you know, we might see differences in the things that we're measuring and we'll split up a certain vineyard block into two or three areas. And the next year we might do it again, but they're not exactly the same area because the season has affected the vineyard in a different way. So I think it's exciting, but it's definitely becoming the new kind of new scientific tools as they come uh, on board gives us new opportunities. And it's I think it's more and more challenging. It's more and more fascinating. Really, it's endless exploration. Yeah, the new frontiers. So speaking of challenges, could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed at something that you were doing. But the most important thing, Victor, is how you persevered, how you were able to get through the other side. And was there a lesson that you may have learned in the process? You know, I think it's it's very important to have, for everybody, I think, to have their own North Star, someplace that, you know, you're going and you know you're going there. And if suddenly you, you find yourself in circumstances pushing you 
in a direction that you don't want to go, that you recognize that and you make a decision for yourself what you want to do. I think the toughest times in my career was when my vision and my boss, who's the general manager of the winery, I'm on my, I guess, fourth general manager at this point, but, you know, our visions diverged. Uh, so, for instance, there was a general manager who was got very interested in expanding to the low end and wanted to become the powerhouse uh, Israeli winery and conquer supermarket wines in Israel. And I didn't think it made sense economically, and I didn't think it made sense because that's not our strong point, and I didn't think it made sense from our region. But we really disagreed, and the last two years of us working together were pretty tough. And then there's ups and downs. I made sure that I was doing in my department, the wine department, that I was doing everything, you know, to the highest level we could and doing everything that I thought was correct. But I always understood that if things change and they're not suitable to me, I'll make a change. And that might sound funny because I've been at the same job now for close to 30 years, but I never felt dependent on a specific position. And I still don't. So I always figure, okay, well, there were a few times, you know, in my career where I said to Aviv, my wife, look, we're having this meeting and we're making this big decision tomorrow. And if it goes away that I don't think it's going to go, you know, I'm going to be resigning. The first time she heard that, she was kind of shocked. The, the second or third time she heard that, she said, okay, well, you know, I'm behind you. Do what you think you have to do and we're going to, you know, we'll make it work. But I think you have to maintain that uh, independence of spirit and of thought to do what you think really is the right thing to do. And not to compromise your values, yeah, I, mean, some, I should say, not yeah, to compromise you, your values. Yeah, not to compromise your values. I think the flip side is choose your battles. So if there's something that you don't think is quite you know, the right way to go, but is not that big of a deal... You don't want to be crying wolf all the time. So you have to make sure when it's important that that's when you're going to stand up and uh, make a stand. Great advice, Victor. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to USC Davis and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I would probably tell myself to relax a little bit to enjoy the experiences as they come. You know, I was always very intent on doing a great job. And I think back about the experiences I've had in my career and where I've been and where I've given tastings and presentations, and it's really incredible. And I think sometimes, especially as I get older and I'm in Japan giving a presentation, for instance, because I've been to Japan now 10 times because it's a good market for us. And I'm giving a presentation, you know, to restaurant owners in Kyoto or something. I kind of kick myself and remind myself, enjoy this moment. I have a sense of humor and I have, at the beginning of my career, I did not enjoy it. But I've come to be more relaxed and enjoy giving tastings and presentations. But, you know, look where you are. Look what you're doing. How many people get to have these kinds of experiences? Just remember to enjoy and appreciate what you're going through at the moment. Oh, I love that advice. And I think it's so true where, especially in the early stages of our lives, 
I was definitely like that. I was not like somebody who was living in the moment. I was always looking up at the next job, the next position that would get me to the top, whatever the top was, and not necessarily savoring the experiences that I was having at that time. Exactly. I think that's the right way to put it. Savor savor the road. Well, and I also think that's an appropriate word to use as a winemaker, <laughs> right? You want to savor the flavor, the yes. aromas. It's sensual. We use our senses. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Victor, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. What you do is so much more complicated than I had ever imagined. And at the same time, it is unbelievably fascinating. And I'm just so grateful to you that you were able to make the time to share some of your expertise and experiences with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's flattering to be invited. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.